Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, these magnificent verses from verse 12 to 17 of Romans 8. This has been a, a real comfort for me this week to just spend time in these verses. And I hope for you today it will be a real comfort and a joy. So Romans 8, what what is Romans 8 about? Well, Romans 8, there's one main thing, really, that Paul is trying to convey to the Roman Christians, and that is assurance. He wants them to be assured. He wants them to be assured of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. He wants them to be assured of their standing before God because they believe the gospel. So in Romans chapter 1 to 4, right at the start of the book, um, Paul explains what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is about how we, who were by our nature in rebellion against God and under his wrath and judgment, have now been declared perfectly righteous, perfectly forgiven. Not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, has taken the punishment for our wrongdoing upon himself. So now that's how God views us. He views us, if we trust in Jesus, as perfectly righteous. That's why it's called the gospel. It's good news for all humanity. But the problem that the Roman Christians were facing and that we today face as Christians is, although we may believe that to be true, how do we reconcile that truth with what we experience in day-to-day living? If that is true, then how do we reconcile it with stuff that we experience that seems to stand contrary to that truth? There are three big issues that was affecting the Christian's assurance that Paul addresses in Romans 8. These are the issues of sin, suffering, and death. And so far in our study, we've been looking at, well, if the gospel is true, and I believe it, and I will be declared perfectly righteous, then why is it that I still sin? How could God possibly accept me? Why, why do I sin if that's true? And that's what we've been looking at so far. What we're going to, about to move on and look at is, well, if the gospel is true, then why do bad things happen to me? Why am I suffering for Jesus' sake. And these verses here, verse 12 to 17, they're kind of a linking passage that that link what Paul's been talking about, about how we deal with our sin, to what he's about to talk about, about how we deal with suffering. And they contain really the heart of Christian assurance. It's found in these amazing verses. And the heart, the bedrock of our assurance as Christians is understanding that we are children of God. So let's look at these verses, Romans 8, verse 12 to 17. Paul writes, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, 
than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, do you notice the strong family language that is used in those verses? Brothers, sons, children, heirs. This is all about being God's children. And before we we move on and we really chew over uh, the meat in these verses, it's worth pointing out why it's so dominated with masculine language. He talks about sons. This is really talking about the theme of sonship. He doesn't talk about sons and daughters. And the reason for that is not because this is a passage that's just for the dudes. Um, It's because in the ancient world, it would be the firstborn son that would inherit the family estate. So the rights of the family would pass on to the firstborn son. That's how things functioned in the ancient world. So Paul's saying that, that all of us, all Christians, male and female, get to enjoy the rights of the firstborn son. It's actually quite a radically inclusive statement. Everyone, females in that church as well, can experience the rights of a firstborn son. And he wants to give all Christians here today, and at the time he wrote this, assurance by reminding them that they are children of God. So the question then is this. How do I know that I am a child of God? How how do I know I've got the Holy Spirit living in me? And that, that this is true, that I can really call God Father. Well, I've got three points. They're on the back of your service sheet. Three points from that text uh, may be helpful as we are, are looking through these verses. First reason we can know you're a child of God. Children of God are led to fight sin by his spirit. We see that in verse 12 to 14 of the text. Paul, Paul begins sort of linking in what we were seeing last week. He begins by talking about if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're not obliged to the flesh. You're not in debt to the flesh. Now, you remember last week, Robin was saying that the term flesh is not a reference to our physical bodies. It's not a reference to the muscle and the the tissue and the sinews of our bodies, but flesh is a term that Paul uses to describe all that was characteristic of us before we became Christians. So, So flesh is a term that is used for the characteristics of those who are still in rebellion against God. It's the old me. It's the sinful me. It's all that was in me that was offensive to God. And Paul says that if you're a Christian, you're a new person. You're not in debt to the flesh because God's Holy Spirit, when you came to believe in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit took up residence in your life and is changing you. The old us with its fleshly desires is not who we are in debt to. So verse 13, kill the deeds of the body. Because that is not you, kill the deeds of the body. In other words, kill those fleshly desires. Kill the sin that is in your life. How do we do this? We don't just do it. You can't just will yourself out of sin. But we do it by the Spirit who lives in us. That's what he says in these verses. See, if you're a Christian, inside you, there is this internal war between the old me with its fleshly desires and the new me that has been transformed and changed by the Spirit. 
If that's why it's really important, look at verse 13, to link it with verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you want to know whether or not you're a child of God, then you have to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, now that's kind of one of these terms that's maybe been abused by Christians. Um, That doesn't mean that uh, you say, uh, for example, God, lead me to the right person to marry. And then like some magnetic force, you'll be dragged towards the right person. And then you can confirm, yeah, I am a child of God. To be led by the Spirit of God is not that. To be led by the Spirit of God is to be led into war, to be led into battle against your sin. If by the Spirit of God you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The two statements are linked together. Children of God are those who want to fight sin in their lives. If you're you're a Christian, you've you've got a new attitude towards sin. Sin's not, no longer this friend that you want to indulge. Sin is this enemy that you want to kill, that you want to get rid of. And I know that for many of us here, if not all of us, if we're being honest, we are really feeling the weight of this battle. Some of you here are probably struggling a lot to kill certain sins in your life, sin that you know is offensive towards God. And you can come to church and sit here, put on a brave face, but overwhelmed with guilt and anxiety, feeling ashamed and like a hypocrite. And eventually it gets to a point where you just start to think, well, how could God possibly love me? How could God love me given what I did last night or what I did last weekend? How could God possibly want anything to do with me? Why would he declare me perfectly righteous when this is what I am like? Let me ask you this. Do you hate the sin in your life and long for it to be put to death? Not merely do you feel, it's not just about feeling guilt or regret for doing something wrong. Anyone can feel that. But do you hate the sin in your life because it is so offensive to God? Because you do want to love God more? My brothers and sisters, if that's you, then you are being led by the Spirit of God and you are a child of God. That is not a natural desire for humanity to have. That is a desire that only the Holy Spirit of God could give you if you want to kill sin and draw closer to him. You see, the reason we hate the sin in our lives is because we're like our Father. It's because we've got something of our Heavenly Father in us. So I'm a Robertson, that's my second name. Uh, And to a degree, the way I behave and act is kind of shaped by my family, So there's Robertson family traits. Uh, We have a tendency to be quite late for things. That's a Robertson family trait. Uh, We have a tendency uh, to enjoy a good argument. I know that would be hard to believe, but if you've met my family, it's definitely not hard to believe. Um, And unfortunately for me, the male members in our family have a tendency to be follically challenged. Um, So there are certain aspects of my family that will shape me because that's who I am. 
When you have the Holy Spirit living in you as a Christian, you have the DNA of God himself. We have become grafted into God's nature. So if you, if you do hate sin, then that's because you're, you're a chip off the old block. That's because you're like your father. That's because you've got the Holy Spirit in you. And God hates your sin. The Holy Spirit hates your sin, which is why he is called holy. And Paul's saying to these Christians, be assured of that. If you are fighting sin in your life, seeking to put it to death, then that is a sign that you have God's Spirit living in you, and you are his child. Now, don't mishear these verses. This does not mean, Paul's not saying that somehow, if we keep killing sin in our lives, we will be perfect. We will eventually kill it off completely. Sin will always rear rear its ugly head. Actually, I think that the more you grow as a Christian, the more you become aware of just how sinful you are. When you first become a Christian, you don't think you're nearly as bad as you are. And then when you grow and you do start to become better, you start to realize just how bad you actually were. The question here is not, have you conquered sin? But are you fighting sin? If you're not wrestling, if you don't wrestle with sin as a Christian, if, you're, if you think, oh, it's fine, God will just forgive me, and that's a worrying sign. Paul wants to give assurance, but he wants to give real assurance. That could be a sign of false assurance if you're cavalier with the sin that's in your life. But if you are a children of God, you are led to battle against it. You hate it. You want to fight it. You wish that there was a button you could press that would just make you stop sinning. And if you do fight against sin, Paul says, you will live. Even though you should die, even though you will die, you will live because sons and daughters of God are like their brother Jesus. They do not die. So that's the first reason we are led to fight sin. If you're being led to fight sin by the Holy Spirit, then you are a child of God. That's a present thing. You can experience that. You can know that now. Second reason that Paul gives our second sign that you are a child of God is that children of God cry out to God as Abba, Father. Verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. These verses are quite something. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Why? Verse 15. Because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of adoption. He, he has been given to us by God to confirm that a legal transaction has taken place. That God has adopted us. He has taken us from being his enemies. He has forgiven us by the blood of Jesus. And now he has adopted us as his children. And so therefore, we do not approach God as slaves towards a master, we approach God as children going towards a father. We don't approach God in fear. The Spirit does not, it does not lead us to fight the sin in our lives by stirring up slavish fear as if I've got to fight the sin, I've got to keep fighting against sin, otherwise God will punish me. Rather, we fight the sin in our lives because of family affection. It's because my father loves me, because my father hates the sin in my life. 
that I want to kill it. I'm sure some of you here have seen the Stephen Fry interview that's been uh, doing the rounds in social media in which he he blasts God. And, and one of the problems with the interview is that Stephen Fry is essentially just angry at a God that, that he's made up. It's not the God of the Bible. And he states this in his interview, why should I spend my life on my knees thanking this God? It doesn't get what, what Paul's saying, what Paul's just said here. God creates sons, not slaves. We follow him not out of fear, but out of affection. Because we are his children. And that's why Paul writes that it is by the Spirit that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. See, he uses the word Abba. Abba is not a Swedish pop group. Abba is an Aramaic term for dad. It's an informal phrase used for dad that children uh, at the time of the apostles would have used for their fathers. And Paul doesn't translate it into Greek. He doesn't translate it into father. He leaves it there as Abba. And I think that's really key. And the reason I think that Paul uses the Aramaic word for father is because that was the intimate term with which Jesus himself addressed God. He called him Abba. And when Jesus did that, it shocked the disciples because nobody, nobody in Israel at that time would ever have dared to call God Father. Sure, in some, uh, I guess, some generic sense, God was seen as the Father of Israel, but for me individually to call God Father, it's unthinkable. And it left such a mark on the apostles that whenever they talked about relating to God, they mentioned the word Abba. That's the word that Jesus used, Abba. And what was even more astonishing was Jesus said that those who follow him and trust him can use that same language. That's why when he teaches us how to pray the famous Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father. We've kind of grown familiar with that. That was an unbelievable thing to say at the time. Our Father, Abba. Abba shows that this isn't, just, this isn't just some mere theological affirmation as to who God is. Abba shows that this is from the bottom of my heart. This is a heartfelt affection for God. It shows that I have this new relationship with God. I am his child. He is my father. Now let's stop and, stop and drink this in. Because this doctrine, the doctrine of adoption, is probably one of the most glorious truths in the entire Bible. And I, I don't mean that, I don't think that's an overstatement at all, or an exaggeration. And yet it is often one that we neglect as Christians. The, the basis for a lot of our lack of assurance in the gospel and Jesus it's because we don't get this doctrine. We don't get the full weight of what it means to be adopted by God and brought into his family. You see, too many of us, I think, view our salvation as if we were, um, as if we were inmates on death row 
and we've had the punishment removed from us, and now we're free, uh, and we're free, and we have life. And that's a great understanding of the gospel. But to be a Christian is, is way more than that, way more. It's not just a movement out of condemnation into acceptance, but it's a movement out of bondage, lostness, and despair into the joyful, safe, secure arms of a father. Justification, the start of Romans talks about, wonderful truth. We can be made right with God. Adoption is a more glorious truth even than that. You see, it is a great thing to be made right with God the judge. But how much more wonderful is it to be loved and cared for by God the Father? You're part of the family. I know that some of you here today, when we talk about family, it's difficult because we all have different ideas of what family was like based upon what our family was like. Some of us probably don't come from a good family background. Some of us here today probably don't even know what it was like to have a loving father. But what Paul's saying here is this is the perfect family, the one you were made for. Even if you did have a great family, it would still be lacking. This is the ultimate family of which all good families are just a mere muddy reflection. Here we have the perfect father and being in God's family means having absolute stability, absolute certainty because here we have a parent who is perfectly wise and perfectly good and your position as his child is permanently assured. No matter how often you muck up, some of you are um, some of you here are parents. Uh, there was a lot more in the first service. Um, but even if you're not a parent, you can understand this. If you had a child who's constantly making mistakes, you'd still love them. If you're a good parent, you would cast your children out of your family. And if you, as a sinful human being, can show that kind of unconditional love to a child, then how much more will the perfect heavenly father be able to do that? To call God Abba is to confirm the fact that you are in the most secure and stable relationship possible. Every other relationship, no matter how good it is, will never be totally secure and stable. Here we have one that is 100% secure. I've been strong struck by this this week and have found it such a comfort that even in anguish and pain, just to take this passage and, and, and to come to God in prayer and to say, Abba, Father, just to say even those two words, it doesn't remove any problems in life, but it does give a sense of perspective, the God of the universe, and calling him my Father. Do you understand who you are? You're not merely a subject, but like Jesus, you're a child. Um, I was chatting to Josh this week, who's in the congregation, about this doctrine. And he recommended to me that I read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. There's a chapter in that book called Sons of God. Um, He recommended it to me, and I'm going to recommend it to everyone to read. 
because it is just such a great and heartwarming read about what it means to be adopted into God's family. But this is what Packer writes. He writes this, God adopts us out of free love, not because our character and our record show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the very opposite. We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of exalting and loving us sinners as he loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild, doesn't it? And yet, Packer writes, that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. Adoption by its very nature is an act of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a child, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. He need not have done anything about our sins, save punish us as we deserved. But he loved us so, he redeemed us, forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as a father. That's why we cry, Abba. The question then for us today, is that how you treat and view God? Do you feel afraid as if God's some harsh taskmaster? Or do you genuinely think, I can pray to God and call him Father. That's how you know if you really are a child. That's something, that kind of assurance is something you can experience now. It's not that we, we're sinners now and we will become children of God. The tense of these verses is not in the future, it's in the past. It's now you are a child of God. That's what I think Paul says in verse 16. There is an inward testimony from the Holy Spirit in which he testifies to our spirit, which he testifies to our conscience and to our personality that we are God's children, that you're just aware. Maybe even now, yes, I can call God Father. It is incredible and it gets even more incredible. Third point, We're children of God because we're led to fight sin. We're children of God because we can cry to him, Abba, Father. Thirdly, finally, we are children of of God, follow the pattern of Jesus' life. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world, Children would, um, more often than not, they would just follow their father's uh, vocation. So you didn't really get a story in the ancient world of people going from rags to riches. It just didn't happen. That's not how it worked. Who you are would often be defined by the kind of family that you were in. And being adopted then was a legal transaction in which the person adopted would be taken into the family And for them to be taken in, it would mean that they would inherit the family business. They would get the family job. So if you are adopted into a family of bakers, then you yourself would become a baker and you would inherit the family bakery. And Paul's saying here 
that if you have God's Holy Spirit, then you are a child of God. And to be a child of God means that you are an heir. In fact, look at that. You're a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. In other words, you've come into the family. You come into the family business. The wealth of your father and his heavenly estate is yours. Sounds crazy because we don't deserve it. Too right, we don't deserve it. But Packer's right. That and nothing less is what's happened in us being adopted. Think about this again. Parents, if you're here, think about your child. You want to give the best for your child, don't you? No matter what you want. You want your child to have the best life possible. Well, your resources, your abilities, and your mortality will always be finite. And no matter how much we want the best, sometimes we cannot give the best because we just can't. But when God wants the best for his children... His resources are unlimited. He cannot fail. When God wants the best for his children, it is so great that it requires eternity itself to grasp it. We are heirs to what God owns. What does God own? It's not just the family bakery. God owns the world. God owns everything. In fact, what Paul's going to go on and say in Romans 8 is that we are heirs to a new creation, a new world, one that will be free from sin, free from suffering, free from death. We are heirs to new resurrection bodies that will not get old or decay or be subject to illness or disease. That's why Paul writes later on in Romans 8.19 that this creation itself is longing for that day when we are revealed as sons of God. But perhaps the greatest inheritance we will get is not those things as wonderful and as glorious as they are, but it's God himself. It's getting God, the Father. There's nothing greater, nothing more wonderful, nothing more glorious than God himself. He's the fountain of all that is good and delightful. And that's why David can say in Psalm 24, one thing I would ask of you, O Lord, and this I would seek, that I may dwell in your house forever to gaze upon your beauty. That is the spectacular promise for those who call God Abba. But notice Notice the very important statement that follows, provided, Paul says, provided we suffer with him, that's Jesus, provided we suffer with Jesus so that like Jesus we may be glorified. See, Jesus, he doesn't just mirror to us the intimate relationship that we can have with God by calling him Abba. Jesus also mirrors to us the kind of life that we must be willing to live as sons and daughters of God. And Jesus' life, what was that like? Jesus' life, the perfect Son of God, the Son of God, Jesus' life was a life that was marked by suffering and pain and affliction. But where is Jesus now? Well, he's in glory. 
That's the pattern that he left. That's why Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples, he told them not to be surprised when suffering would come into this world. He says, don't think that a servant's greater uh, than his or her master. If the world's hating me, of course it's going to hate you. That's what it looks like to follow him. Paul's getting us to see, though, that Jesus' suffering led to his glory. See, think about how this helps us now in our assurance, right now. The Roman Christians were having their assurance shaken by the fact that that they were suffering now because they were Christians. That's why they were suffering. They were suffering because they were Christians. But Paul's saying to them, suffering is not something that is abnormal for God's children. Rather, it's to be expected. It's what happened to Jesus. It's what happens to those who follow Jesus. But our pain and anguish is not an end in and of itself. It's just a temporal shadow. There is a glory, a transcendent beauty that is far beyond its reach, that is eternal and unfading, that the children of God will inherit. In Romans 5, 3, Paul says, suffering produces perseverance. It drives us to persevere with God. It drives us to that point where we can get closer to God by putting us on our knees, where we cry out to God, Abba, Father, help me. And so if you think, I can't be a child of God because of what I'm going through, I can't be a child of God because every time I talk about Jesus, I just get shot down and made to feel rubbish about it. I can't be a child of God because of the pain and the anguish that comes with that. Paul's saying to recognize that suffering no way detracts from your sonship. In fact, verse 17, suffering confirms it. And if you're not going through difficulties for the sake of following Jesus at the moment. We live in a very privileged position here. And the question then is, are you willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Because if you are, then you really are a child of God. This is something we're going to see uh, beautifully expounded for us in the rest of Romans 8 as the weeks go on. Paul's going to really um, delve into this subject in great detail. But let me just wrap up all this by saying this. Do you know who you are today if you're a Christian? It's really important. It's one of these things we can just glaze over. I mean, think about it. How would you describe yourself as somebody who's forgiven, restored, redeemed, reconciled? It's great. That's, that's right. But would you describe yourself as a child of God? an heir with Christ. And I know that some of you here today will not be followers of Jesus, but this is the offer that's open to you. This is what it means to believe in the gospel. It's not just been made right with God. It is that, and that's a wonderful thing that everyone needs, but it's been brought into God's family, into the premium family. How do you do that? Well, John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, John writes this, to those who believed in Jesus, he gave them the right to be called sons of God. What do I need to do to get into this family? To those who believe in Jesus, he will give them the right to be called sons of God. You don't deserve it. 
We don't give ourselves the right. He will give us it if we believe and trust in him. And those of us here who are his children, who have been shaken because of sin, because of suffering, Paul wants us to be assured. If you hate sin and are striving to put it to death, if you are crying to God, Abba, and if you are willing to suffer for his sake, then you are in the safe hands of your Father, and he will take you through the ups and downs of life until, like Jesus, you receive an inheritance in glory. Let's pray. Abba, Father, it's amazing that we can even say that. We're so aware we don't deserve to say that. And yet we know we can say that because the reason for us calling you Abba is not down to our merit or what we have done in life, but because you've adopted us. We did not choose you as a father, but you chose us as sons and daughters. And that's such an amazing truth. Father, help us not to be passive towards it, but to drink in the realities of what that actually means to be treated like Jesus. Father, thank you for that amazing change that has happened in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we admit we feel far from you at times. We feel shaken and unassured. Help us then by your Spirit. May it confirm with our spirit that we are indeed children of God to feel this assurance and security and the comfort that comes from calling you Father. Father, pray for those who are struggling with sin here. All of us are, if we're honest. Pray for those who are suffering and going through pain. Father, may the the truth about our sonship and our status as your children be a comfort. And Lord, although we know it doesn't make problems go away, may it give us perspective to endure through the difficulties of life. Thank you that we can call you Abba and that you look upon us and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.